Hi everyone, this is Andre. Welcome to Post-Soviet Chronicles, a podcast on the recent history and politics of the former Soviet Union region. Before we begin, I'm going to ask you to please support this podcast by giving it five stars and following it on your preferred streaming platforms. Please also subscribe for free via email on postsovietchronicles.com slash subscribe so you never miss an episode and receive subscriber-only content as well. It's the best way to support this podcast and I would be incredibly grateful if you could go ahead and do that. If you like shorter content in a video format, you can also follow the show on Instagram and TikTok. The handle is the same everywhere, it's Post-Soviet Chronicles. This episode is going to be on the man behind the Wagner private military company, also known as Putin's chef, Yevgeny Prigozhin. There is so much to talk about here that I actually had to split this episode into two. The first part, which you're listening to right now, uh, will cover his life outside of his involvement with Wagner Group. But don't worry, uh, we'll have the entire part 2 just on Wagner, as well as Prigozhin's mutiny in June 2023 and his death in a plane crash two months later. So, in this part, we'll talk about how he spent most of his youth in prison and then started a successful restaurant business in St. Petersburg during the 1990s. His restaurants somehow impressed the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and as a result, his catering companies started winning huge state contracts. This earned him his famous nickname, Putin's chef, and basically made him a billionaire. He then created the infamous troll farm, which, on direct orders from Russian presidential administration, praised Putin 24-7 while discrediting and harassing Russian opposition politicians, bloggers and independent journalists. The troll farm gradually grew into a media empire, the purpose of which was to pump out propaganda on behalf of the Russian government and engage in disinformation and smear campaigns in Russia and abroad. Before he became widely known as the head of the Wagner private military company, Prigozhin had already made global headlines when his troll farm was accused by the FBI of trying to influence the outcome of the 2016 US presidential elections. Over the years, his public image gradually shifted from Putin's chef to um, Putin's personal sadist due to his violent practices used against Russian government critics as well as his own employees. As you can see, there is a lot to talk about here, so let's dive deep into the first part of this story. Prigozhin was born in 1961 in Leningrad, which is currently known as St. Petersburg. His father died when he was still a child and his stepfather, who was a skiing instructor, introduced him to skiing, which became young Prigozhin's big passion. He went to a sports boarding school and wanted to become a professional skier, but for whatever reason, that did not work out. After an unsuccessful career in sports, uh, Prigozhin chose a life of a criminal, and in 1979, Only at 18 years old, he was sentenced to six months in prison for stealing. Having served his sentence, he returned to his home city and, guess what, Uh, carried on being a criminal. He formed a small gang, of which he was likely a leader, and was known by his nickname Jaco. Together with his gang members, he mostly engaged in burglary, robbery and theft. A particularly troubling story from this period of Prigozhin's life is a robbery of a woman, whom he choked so he could steal her earrings and shoes. 
I guess that kind of already tells you what a charming bloke we're dealing with here. For these criminal activities, he was sentenced to 12 years. He would then essentially spend his entire 20s in prison, where, aside from his youth, he also lost a part of his ring finger. Uh, don't get too excited, he wasn't doing anything Bond villainy just yet. It was likely just an accident during some sort of manual work. There is not much information about his time in prison, and so it's quite difficult to distinguish between the truth, um, the fantasies of Prigozhin's PR team, and the actual smear campaigns against him. Uh, the stories go from things like Prigozhin was an amazing chap who shared his tea with his cellmates, worked hard and, I don't know, read a lot, uh, to claims that he belonged to the lowest caste of Russian prisoners and was bullied and humiliated by other inmates. There's very little evidence to support any of these claims, so there's no point dwelling on them too much. Prigozhin was eventually released a bit earlier, in 1994, good behavior. This time, he avoided getting locked up again and decided to try himself in business during the crazy free-for-all era of the early 1990s Russia. According to his own words, together with his stepdad, Prigozhin started selling hot dogs out of an old trolley bus in St. Petersburg. Their sausages apparently became pretty popular and started generating a decent profit for the Prigozhin family. While this is the original story Prigozhin has told himself, there are many other accounts of his early business career uh, claiming he was actually involved in some semi-legal car and gambling businesses. During the early 1990s, he's reported to have worked closely with two Jewish businessmen with alleged ties to organized crime. We're talking about Boris Spekta, who had actually been Prigozhin's classmate at the sport boarding school, and Mikhail Miralishvili, who was known in the organized crime circles as Misha Kutaisky. They invited Prigozhin to become a manager of their retail chain called Contrast, which he then managed for several years. According to an outstanding Russian investigative media outlet Project, these two businessmen provided Prigozhin with a substantial part of his initial capital that allowed him to start his own restaurant business. He initially started by opening his first bar and then, in 1995, a restaurant in St. Petersburg. The restaurant was called Stare Tamoznya, or Old Customs House, and turned out to be a very successful project. It became popular among the St. Petersburg's political elite, allegedly including Anatoly Sobchak, who was the city's mayor from 1991 to 1996. And if you're at least partially familiar with the Russian politics in the 1990s, you probably already know where this is going. During this period, Sobchak had an inconspicuous advisor who served as the head of the Committee for External Relations of the Mayor's Office. His name was Vladimir Putin. Given Putin himself recently claimed to have known Prigozhin since the 1990s, it is quite possible that this restaurant was the place where they met for the first time. Two years later, his success allowed him to open another restaurant, New Island, this time on a boat. It was the first of its kind and quickly became one of the trendiest and most expensive places in St. Petersburg. It was once again frequented by prominent business people and politicians. In 2001, during the French president's official visit to Russia, Putin, who was already Russia's president at that point, took him to New Island, where they were served by Prigozhin himself. Putin liked the restaurant so much that he continued bringing in his foreign guests, 
including the US President George Bush. Uh, there's this famous photo where Prigozhin's standing next to Bush, um, presumably offering to fill up his glass. And in 2003, Putin even celebrated his birthday at this restaurant. Putin's fondness of Prigozhin's food allowed him to get acquainted and maybe even become friends with Putin's staff and just generally gain the president's trust. He managed to do that so well that in the 2000s, he started providing catering for many official government events. Uh, these included the St. Petersburg Economic Forum or the inauguration of President Dmitry Medvedev in 2008. That's how he eventually became known as Putin's chef. Around 2011, Prigozhin's main company, Concord, and its affiliated entities started winning government contracts to provide catering to state facilities, mainly in the education sphere such as schools and kindergartens. The company quickly took over this sector in Russia's two largest cities, and by 2016 Concord provided catering to 90% of all schools in Moscow, basically forming a monopoly. The problem was, as it usually happens when you win state contracts based on something other than merit, many parents complained about the quality of the food supplied to their children's schools. In 2017, at least nine kids from a school supplied by one of Prigozhin-affiliated companies got sick with dysentery, which is basically a very, very bad food poisoning. This was picked up by Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and his close ally and a very capable lawyer, Lubov Sobel. They started an online campaign accusing Prigozhin of poisoning Russian children as a result of corruption that had allowed him to win these contracts in the first place. Luckily for Prigozhin, the judicial system in Putin's Russia largely works on a telephone justice principle. You know, when the judge goes to the back room, picks up a phone and is told by the party boss what the verdict should be. So he made a good use of that by filing a huge claim against Navalny and Sobel, essentially forcing their organization into bankruptcy. However, the parents of the kids who got sick then filed a claim against Prigozhin's company with the help of Sobel, who represented them in court. They eventually even managed to win the case in 2020 when the court ordered Prigozhin's company to provide the affected families with some small compensation payments. But even that could be considered a massive win given the state of Russian judiciary which completely lacks independence from the ruling regime. And the most interesting thing is that even though a Russian court confirmed that Prigozhin's company gave multiple kids food poisoning, he had absolutely no issues winning these school catering contracts again in the same year. One could say that his feeling of complete invincibility, which became so characteristic for him towards the end of his life, was already forming then. Aside from the educational facilities, Prigozhin's companies also supplied food to Russian ministries, and most notably the Ministry of Defense. During the 2010s, Prigozhin gradually became the supplier of over 90% of the ministry's food provisions. He also started providing food and utility services to Russia's military towns, which turned out to be a very lucrative business too. At some point, internal emails and documents of Prigozhin's company Concord were leaked, and those leaks kind of implied that Putin actively promoted Prigozhin's catering business and actually instructed both the mayor of Moscow and the Russian defense minister to award their contracts to Prigozhin. 
it is safe to say that his access to these government contracts essentially made him a billionaire. At the end of the 2000s, Prigozhin decided to enter a different sector, the media. Most probably, he realized that he could win even more favors with the presidential administration by helping it spread the state propaganda. But what is interesting is that he decided to focus on online, especially social media, which was exactly what the Russian government needed at that point. The thing is, um, the late 2000s and the early 2010s uh, was the time when the Russian government already managed to gain control over the majority of the country's mainstream media and TV channels. Um, these were obviously the main source of information for the general public at the time. But during this period, um, the internet-based sources like LiveJournal and YouTube were gaining huge popularity. And they were naturally used by Russian opposition politicians, activists and journalists as an alternative independent platform with a huge, predominantly younger audience. While opposition politicians were essentially banned from mainstream media, uh, they were able to leverage the online resources to criticize the government and, most importantly, organized pretty big anti-government protests in the early 2010s. Those protests weren't effective enough to you know, bring down the government, but they really scared a lot of people in the Kremlin. And so obviously, the Russian government was trying to find a way to get its hands on the internet. And at some point, this was communicated to Prigozhin by one of Russia's top officials, and uh, Prigozhin allegedly offered to help. He promised to set up his own network of online bloggers who would push the Kremlin agenda on the internet. And very soon after that, people started noticing a strange online trend. Whenever any anti-government content was published by popular Russian bloggers, politicians or journalists, it would get thousands of pro-government comments by dodgy social media accounts insulting the authors and singing Putin's praises. And I remember these times when Russia still wasn't as crazy and I was writing my dissertation on Russian propaganda. I would always be surprised to see that so many people online were displeased with anti-government content while regular Russian propaganda shows uploaded to YouTube would get almost exclusively positive reactions. I just didn't get where were all these politically engaged Putin lovers coming from. Because think about it, at that point it was still mainly the youth that was consuming content online. And as we know, the youth in Russia is extremely apathetic towards politics. The core Putin supporters were still getting most of their information from the state-controlled TV, and many of them didn't even use the internet. So who were all those people writing comments under Russian political content online? It felt completely unreal, and as it turned out later on, it was. As revealed by a number of journalistic investigations, most of this online activity was generated by bots or trolls, fake online accounts, operated by Prigozhin's troll farm based in a small office building near St. Petersburg. The official name of his troll farm was the Internet Research Agency. It hired random young people who needed quick money and paid them for writing a set number of negative comments a day, criticizing Russian opposition politicians or saying nasty things about the US, Barack Obama and other Putin's arch enemies. 
The troll farm had several departments, which included the actual trolls, internally referred to as commentators, um, but also separate departments for producing longer-form content such as online blog posts and fake news articles. Eventually, Prigozhin's trolls even managed to reach the West. And in 2018, the US authorities accused his troll farm of trying to influence the US presidential elections in favor of Donald Trump. According to the allegations, the trolls found a way to push pro-Trump messaging to millions of US voters through social media like Facebook. It is not entirely clear to what extent were the trolls actually able to sway the public opinion in favor of Trump, but it is pretty certain that they at least tried to do so. After this came out, the FBI actually placed Prigozhin on its most wanted list, in addition to the US personal sanctions that had already been imposed against him in 2016. Prigozhin, of course, uh, rejected these allegations and even denied any affiliation with the troll farm. But lo and behold, in an interview in February 2023, he admitted that the so-called Internet Research Agency was his project all along. Prigozhin's troll farm gradually grew into a media empire, which included everything from online news outlets to a network of paid pro-government bloggers and anonymous Telegram channels. His media outlets published their content predominantly online and were able to reach a massive audience. Um, they had absolutely nothing to do with actual journalism, though, and were just another tool to push out Russian state propaganda online, uh, criticize the opposition and spread disinformation. Uh, their articles would often follow the standard sort of template of any trashy media spreading disinformation. Um, things like having a clickbait in its headline, um, citing social media accounts created by its own troll farm, or taking some factual basis and then twisting it into something completely different. And when they couldn't find any factual basis for their propaganda articles, they would just make things up. They would, for example, hire people who looked somewhat similar to prominent Russian opposition figures and stage videos to make them look bad. Like the time when they hired a random guy who, um, from a distance, looked like an opposition politician Ilya Yashin uh, to have him kick a stray cat on a video. Yes, it was incredibly cheap and dumb, um, but this sort of stuff was extremely characteristic for the activities of Prigozhin's media. Their target audience were people who generally lacked critical thinking and were not very media literate. And since people like this, unfortunately, form a very big part of current Russian society, uh, these methods turned out to be very, very effective. I mean, there's plenty of people in the West who easily believe disinformation from some obscure media sources as well, so imagine how it is in Russia where the access to information is so limited these days. His media regularly organized smear campaigns against people Prigozhin considered his enemies. And while his personal enemies were usually the same as the enemies of the Russian government, their interests would sometimes diverge. Even though this was quite rare, um, Prigozhin did go off script a couple of times and ordered smear campaigns against senior people within Putin's political establishment. Not at all because of some ideological or political reasons, but rather as a result of nothing more than his personal grudge. The most notable example was his media campaign against complete Putin loyalist Alexander Biglov, who has been the governor of St. Petersburg since 2018. Initially, Prigozhin had actually supported Biglov, 
during his election campaign, but then something happened, they had a fight or whatever, and as a result, presumably on Beglov's orders, Prigozhin started losing some government contracts in St. Petersburg, including a highly lucrative construction project in the city. His media then started an intense campaign against Beglov, constantly accusing him of mismanagement and corruption. By the way, the allegations may have very well been true, it's just that these media conveniently only started to care once Beglov fell out with Prigozhin. As part of this campaign, Prigozhin allegedly even paid one of the most popular Russian rock stars, Sergei Shnurov, to write and sing satirical songs about Beglov. I have to say it was quite sad to see one of the coolest punk rockers of the 90s age like milk and end up on Prigozhin's payroll, but it is what it is. The interesting thing is that despite all his efforts, Prigozhin failed to bring Biglov down. That tells you a lot about Prigozhin's actual political influence, which uh, people often mistakenly considered to be significant. At some point, people would even mention Prigozhin as Putin's potential successor, which couldn't have been more wrong. As you can see, when it came to relatively serious politics, like at least governor level, Prigozhin was pretty much a nobody. He was never actually part of Putin's inner circle and there was no friendship between them. That's one of the biggest myths out there about Prigozhin. He was more like a loyal servant who did as he was told and was used for dirty work uh, that Putin initially didn't want to be directly associated with. And as soon as he stopped being as useful and made way too many enemies within Putin's elite, he was disposed of in the most demonstrative way possible. But we'll discuss this more in the second part of this episode. Unfortunately, and this is where this story takes a very dark turn, the activities of Prigozhin and his thugs weren't limited to the internet. He would also hire people to terrorize Russian opposition politicians and bloggers in real life. His troll farm even maintained a list of anti-government activists and bloggers, some of whom were then harassed, threatened and sometimes physically attacked. Uh, for example, in 2016, uh, the husband of Lubov Sobel, the lawyer that represented the kids who got poisoned by Prigozhin's catering company, was actually attacked in front of his house. The perpetrator injected an unknown substance into his body and ran away. Police was called to investigate it, which should have been incredibly easy since the attacker was actually recorded by a doorbell camera, so his face was widely known. But independent Russian media reported that Prigozhin had ordered the attack, and as it happens with Prigozhin-sponsored violence, Russian police never managed to find out anything. At least not until two years later, when this attacker, and this is not a joke, died under suspicious circumstances. Sobel's husband, on the other hand, survived the attack, um, although he was sick and had to go to the hospital. But, sadly, not everyone who annoyed Prigozhin made it out alive. Even though he, at least initially, tried to look like a respectable businessman, it appears that deep down, he was still that same guy who choked a woman for a pair of shoes in the 80s. He never actually stopped engaging in violent behavior from his criminal past and, according to many accounts, was obsessed with cruelty and violence. And the fact that he was essentially untouchable for the Russian police allowed him to do whatever he wanted. 
An article by the Russian investigative media outlet I already mentioned, Project, summarized instances of Prigozhin's violence very well. According to this article, in 2013 his employees used an iron rod to beat up a regional Russian blogger who criticized Putin. In 2016 they actually killed another regional opposition blogger by poisoning him through an injection. A year later, Prigozhin's thugs allegedly took one of his business partners, Andrei Mikhailov, into the forest where they beat him up and forced him to give up his stake in one of Prigozhin's companies. And the violence doesn't end there. After Prigozhin's unsuccessful coup, which we will talk about in the second part of this episode, some of his former employees that Project interviewed revealed quite a lot of pretty disturbing stuff. He would allegedly physically abuse his employees on a regular basis as if it was something completely normal. Uh, this included pushing a badly performing employee down the stairs as well as kicking a driver in the head from the back seat to make him drive faster. But more often, he would actually have his employees beaten up for him. He allegedly had this guy in the basement of his main office. Uh, this guy was known as the teacher, whose job it literally was to beat up employees who had displeased Prigozhin. Yes, you've heard it correctly, he had his personal beatings guy and he called him teacher. According to one of his former employees, this teacher would allegedly beat some of them, sometimes even for several days, and send real-time pictures to Prigozhin who would then decide whether they've had enough or not. Unsurprisingly, none of these instances were investigated by the Russian police. Uh, because, once again, when it comes to Prigozhin, the police somehow always manage to lose all the evidence. It's only when it comes to criticizing the war in Ukraine, or, God forbid, participating in a peaceful anti-government protest, that the Russian police suddenly turns into a SWAT team and storms your apartment. The worst part is that this all is still just a drop in the sea, in terms of Prigozhin's apparent sadistic tendencies that became even more obvious as a result of his involvement with Wagner PMC. And this is what we will talk about in the second part of this episode. So please stay tuned and follow this podcast so you don't miss it when it comes out. We'll discuss Prigozhin's role as the founder and sponsor of the Wagner Group, his alleged political ambitions, unsuccessful coup attempt in June 2023 and his sudden death in a plane crash exactly two months later. This is all from me for today, please stay tuned for part 2 and make sure you give this podcast 5 stars on your preferred streaming platforms. You can also subscribe via email on postsovietchronicles.com slash subscribe to receive notifications about new episodes and exclusive subscriber-only bonus materials. Thank you for listening to Post Soviet Chronicles. <laughs>